The Science Inside Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Science Inside. My name is Elna Schutz and today's show starts here in windy Cape Town in a place called Sternfontein, just outside of the city. I am standing next to some buildings that look industrial, almost like some silos and warehouses. And in the background, you can probably hear not just the wind and ocean waves, but a little bit of water trickling. This is in fact wastewater from one of Cape Town's desalination plants. They are working 24 hours a day pumping in salty water from the ocean and pumping out usable drinking water. Today on the show, we will be looking more closely at desalination, not just in Cape Town, but inland, as well as some of the health effects of water produced at plants like the one I'm standing next to. We'll also have our unscience and our science news as always, but stick with me as I come in from the cold and the wind here on The Science Inside. This is The Science Inside with Elna. And indeed I am nice and dry and warm in studio. It's like <laughs> magic, level. <laughs> yeah, it's dry out here. No ocean winds, no currents, nothing. <laughs> but as you've heard from that clip, we are talking about desalination. Yes, I went down to Cape Town and it is so noticeable down there, Lebo, that it is a place that needs all the water it can get. Every bathroom you go into, every place, it's just so clear. Save water, save water, save water. I mean, they did have that recent crisis. So, I mean, they they are kind of aware. Mm, And these plans that they put into place, like desalination plants, um, that's a factory basically that turns ocean water into drinkable water, in case you don't know what desalination is. Those have been planned during the drought, but are, of course, still standing now and making water. Mm. So this is a great opportunity to think about desalination, how it works, what kind of effects it has, as I was saying in that clip earlier. Because you know what, Lebo, you and I may not be in Cape Town, we may not be in a place that has a severe drought, but we're still in South Africa. And Mm. water scarcity is still a very real threat. Definitely with dams having less and less water over the years, we're going to have to consider things like desalination. Mm. And guys, you can get us on our social media at Facebook as VowFM, and you can tweet us at VowFM, hashtag signs inside. And the podcast is up on iTunes and it's on vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science. If you want to share a voice note or send us a little message, you can catch us on our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. Yes. So that is where you'll find us for social media on the show today. We're going to get into all things desalination later on. But for right now, let's get into our science news. This week's science headline. Level, what do you have for us? Uh, Today, Alna, I want to find out if you are a tea or coffee person. I know I'm like tea and coffee, but I really, really like coffee. I'm a huge coffee snob. (laughs) Everybody that knows me probably knows that I love my coffee. In a giant mug. Yes. (laughs) If you've ever met me here at Val, you'll know I have this giant mug with an E on it. Everybody knows it's mine. Everybody knows do not mess with Alma and her caffeine. And it's been that way as long as I can remember. And what about your family? Oh, yeah, big big coffee drinkers. Oh, so it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing in our in our family. You always have good coffee. It's always filter coffee. Red coffee, those those instant things do not sit a foot in my house. I, I like your family. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> I have a very clear memory of being at Varsity on the phone with my mom saying, oh, I'm, I'm grocery shopping. And, and she said, don't buy bad coffee. I'll send you money. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like the fact that you guys respect coffee. And that very love for coffee may not be entirely unrelated to you and your family. Okay. So this comes from the University of Queensland in Australia, where researchers studied that they studied the gen- genetics of 400,000 British as well as whether they like to drink coffee or tea. Okay. See, our genetic differences actually influence our taste receptors, meaning our genes determine, for instance, how much taste, how much you taste bitterness. 
So people who particularly pick up bitter tastes normally avoid bitter foods like kale or sprouts. And this is why, this is, which is why rather, the results of this study was so surprising. Okay. So opposite to the norm, if you particularly taste bitterness, you actually be more likely to drink coffee. Oh, so like sprouts and kale, other things with bitterness, not so much. But the caffeine bitterness, those people like to have those taste receptors. Yes. See, this makes sense to me because I always say this to people that are surprised that I don't drink sugar in my coffee. That things like chocolate and coffee, I like the bitterness. I want mm. that like 80% lint, like bring Yes, up. you and I, same level. Same genes. <laughs> same genes, yes. And the researchers found that there were actually levels to this. Okay. So the more bitter taste receptor genes someone had, the more likely they were to have heavy, they, they were to be heavy coffee drinkers. So you and I maybe. Yeah. And we're talking more than four cups a day. So that's I don't know. Lot. Yeah, that's I don't know. I don't know if I'm about to drink four cups a day unless it's a rough day, I'm writing a test tomorrow, I'm not ready for anything, you know? To be honest with you, I'm not very far away from that. Oh. My doctor <laughs> my doctor thinks I drink two cups a day. And you drink how many? <laughs> more. <laughs> okay. More. More. All right. <laughs> So they call them super tasters of caffeine. Oh, so I'm a super taster. Yeah, you I should tell just, my doctor that. You should just have like a t-shirt with a giant S on and you're like, I'm a super taster. Nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> also, these people who are better at detecting caffeine may be more likely to become addicted to its stimulant effects. Hmm. I feel like you're getting very personal here. <laughs> you know what? This is hitting both of us right now. I'm like, you're, I'm reflecting on my life, yo, because I really like caffeine, yeah. to be honest. And thing is, caffeine contributes to not only the bitterness of coffee, but also to the perceived texture and how strong people think it is. Ah, yes. So these caffeine tasters find stronger coffee more enjoyable, which is true, you know? Yeah, yeah, I get that. You don't want it to be too, like, too weak. It's going to taste like water. Yeah. <laughs> so, and if you're one of those people, well, we just concluded that we are one of those people, you may drink less tea, which contains less of the bitter caffeine or other chemicals like um, this chemical that is said is quinine. Yes, yeah, quinine. I've heard of it. So there's lots of that in tea. And you're basically saying it's like either I'm team tea or I'm team coffee. Yeah, you're team tea or team, I mean, team coffee or team quinine. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm not getting myself confused here, like I'm thinking a lot about my life, reflecting on my <laughs> coffee love, my love for coffee and my dislike possibly for tea. And people who are sensitive to quinine, however, were far more likely to drink lots of tea and not coffee. Yeah, so it's like it's it's like team tea and team coffee. Yeah. Okay, much. I get you. And now I can blame it all on my genes. When somebody comes and says, I only drink too much coffee, I'm like, it's my genetics. Yeah, it's in the blood. That's <laughs> what it is. Just tell them it's in the blood. Okay, okay. So I, I, I suppose that makes sense to me because so many things are influenced by our genes, but that doesn't mean that you're off the hook if you're living in healthy and drinking like four to five cups a day. I don't think I should be blaming my, my parents. Black coffee is said to be much healthier. So either way, there's a good side to everything. Okay. Okay, I'll take it. I will take it. <laughs> in the news uh, for me today, Lebo, some good news from the animal kingdom. This comes from News24, Fortune and the IUC in itself. So since 1964, the International Union for Conservation of Nature has been keeping a red list of threatened species, which I'm sure you've heard about many times before. Um, this is across animal, fung fungi and plant species. And it is when we say a certain animal is endangered. We're actually talking about this, this international list. Oh, okay. They decide if somebody is endangered or not and they keep like records of how many of pandas or whatever they are in the world, right? Mm. Um, so their spectrum goes from least concern through to endangered, critically endangered, 
in extinct in the wild and finally completely extinct, which is obviously where you want to stay as far as possible from. So they recently released some new findings and they detail how some of the decline that we know is happening in species. Um, why is it happening is one of the things that this uh, new report detailed. And one thing is that overfishing is threatening fish species, especially in parts of the developing world where a lot of people uh, eat a lot of fish. So, for instance, around Lake Malawi. Mm. There's also a type of tree called, I think you pronounce this veen or vene. I wasn't able to find the correct pronunciation, unfortunately. But that tree is now on the endangered list because it is so popular when it comes to making household products that Mm. we're actually pushing it onto the endangered list. Okay, so this is good to know because those are both things we can still react to and we can adjust our lifestyles to make these things better. But now... You said you had good news. Yes. So I'm hearing more trees getting extinct, fish getting extinct. I'm trying to find the good news here. <laughs> so there are two species uh, that were bumped down the list. Well, a couple, but two in particular that were bumped down the list during this recent update, which is very good. First off, the famous Central African mountain gorilla, also called the silverback gorilla. They are now no longer critically endangered and just classified as endangered, which is one step further away from being extinct. A decade ago, there were only about 680 individuals, but this year that was up to a thousand gorillas. Whoa. That's high, hey? <laughs> That's a lot. In, in just a year. Ten years. Ten, Ten years. years. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, so I mean, it takes a while, obviously, because, you know, yeah, baby, yeah. baby gorillas, <laughs> but, but it but is a lot still, mm, and it is quite a rare occurrence for something to be bumped up. So these silverback gorillas live in the Western Rift Valley forests between Rwanda, Congo, and Uganda, and they draw lots of tourists, but also conservation efforts, including anti-poaching patrols and veterinary interventions. So there's been a lot of focus on them in the last ten years, obviously, and this is a big victory for how. All of these kind of interventions and conservation focus can change the fate of a species. Okay, so what threatens them exactly? You mentioned poaching. Yes, you're right. The threat isn't over and poachers is one big threat, but there's also civil unrest in the area that can often affect the gorillas and even diseases like Ebola. I was very surprised to read. Yeah. So the other thing is that while the efforts are working, more gorillas also means there need to be more resources to take care of them and more space, perhaps depending on the forests. So that is also something that the researchers are just saying. Um, Just because it's bumped up doesn't mean that efforts should now be pulled back. Okay, that is good news. I mean, hooray to the gorillas. But did anyone get a red list upgrade? Anyone else? Did anyone else get it? Yeah, yeah. So things are looking good for whales. (laughs) The fin whale is now on the vulnerable list instead of endangered, which is very good. Um, And there are now twice as many as in the 1970s. And then grey whales also moved from critical to endangered. And those whales, both of those species, were previously hunted for their blubber, oil and meat. But uh, in the late 70s, international bans were put on commercial whaling in the North Pacific and in the Southern Hemisphere. And we're now seeing how these bands are making a difference. Wow, all this like betterment of species is just making global warming sound like it's not really that big. Like it's, It makes global warming sound a little bit better because we're saving some species. Yeah, but think about the threats that we talked about. Not one of them okay, was true. climate It wasn't climate change. It was related. humans. It was humans, yes. So really we're undo- undoing we're, our own damage. We're being better. People are getting better. Yeah, okay, we'll we'll stick with that. (laughs) But we need to still keep saving the pandas. And also, um, something that I always find really interesting when we talk about endangered species is the species that have a lot of trouble in terms of conservation are the ugly ones. (laughs) And I'm I'm not even kidding. I've spoken to experts, scientific experts in this field. For instance, in South Africa, we have a really big problem with um, with vultures because nobody wants to pay. Everybody wants to pay to save the cheetah. Nobody wants to pay to save 
the vulture because it's ugly. Shame. So actually conservation efforts, we should remember not just the cute panda, but the ecosystem also needs that like endangered frog or that endangered ugly bird. <laughs> wow, the vulture must feel like... Must feel really good right now. Like, ah, oh, they just don't want to say me because I'm ugly. That's cool. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I didn't care anyway. Okay, that is our science news. Um, just to kick off the show with some things from the world of science. But next up on the science side, we talk desalination, making drinkable water from ocean water sounds like a dream. But how drinkable is drinkable? What kind of health effects? Does um, does this desalinated water have on our bodies? We find out after the break. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we're talking desalination. And we're talking about the health effects. And we've got a story from, from Bridget Lepere. <laughs> there you go. Um, our producer, Bridget Lepere, did this story about uh, desalination and particularly how this water that is such a big solution to droughts, especially for cities that are close to the sea, like Cape Town, what kind of effect it can have on our bodies. Have a listen. The city of Cape Town over recent months has been hardest hit with a severe drought, causing water shortages and scarcity. To solve the water crisis, the city of Cape Town has sought after multiple measures to yield water production, namely wastewater reuse, which has been very effective so far, groundwater and desalinization, which is said to produce up to 150 litres of clean water per day. These measures, according to the city, will ensure Cape Town has a sustainable plan which is resilient to future water supply burdens. Professor Leslie Patrick from the University of Cape Town speaks about why the current plans for desalinization may not be such a good idea. We have a situation in Cape Town where the sewage from Salt River all the way around to Camps Bay and Hart Bay is being discharged into the ocean untreated. The city keeps on saying that the water is treated, but actually it just goes through a screen to take out bulky objects like nappies. So there's no secondary or tertiary treatment happening there. There's not even primary treatment of settling happening, which means that everything that is in the sewage goes out into the ocean, and that includes the feces, the urine, and any chemical that anybody is using to bath with or to shower with or to wash clothes with, because obviously all our machine-washing water goes into the sewer, and so does all our bathing water, and that water gets tipped down the sewer. So we have a huge amount of chemicals going out into the ocean. Also on top of that, all the pharmaceuticals you take and coffee and painkillers and antibiotics, most of those compounds are not degraded when they go through your body. They go through your body just as is, it seems, because we're detecting those compounds out in the ocean. According to the South African National Standards 241 testing specifications, the city is supposed to test for organic and inorganic compounds, which the city has not, according to Leslie. Apparently, in this outdated report, which was carried out in 2015, the city had only tested for about 54 inorganic compounds such as metals, but other microbes were not tested for and do not appear in the said report. I mean, we tested for 14 compounds and we found all those 14 compounds in the marine organisms, but we didn't actually manage to test for those 55 compounds that the city had tested for because we didn't have money to do the test. But that doesn't mean that those compounds were not in the water. It just means that we couldn't test for them. In their report, the CSIR confirmed that there were sewage outfalls into the sea but posed no significant harm. It is noted that three municipalities, namely Greenpoint, Camps Bay and Hout Bay, currently do not have any wastewater plants and are currently discharging wastewater at astronomical rates. Greenpoint discharging amounts of up to 28 trillion litres, Camps Bay and Hout Bay at 2.4 trillion and 5.7 trillion litres respectively. This amounts to just over 36 trillion litres of wastewater per day. The city has grown by about five-fold since marine discharge points were designed. So who knows actually what is being discharged there. 
they're saying that the pipes are designed in such a way that the sewage will go into the ocean and get diluted. And typically the discharge pipes are around about one kilometer to 1.5 kilometers out at sea. Now, let's get a picture of what exactly has been found flowing into the ocean as a result of the wastewater dumping and more or less to what extent is the contamination. When we look at the type of contaminants in this water, if you look at, once again, I have to take you to the CSIR report, and this is not my report, this is their report. We've actually measured the stuff in the ocean. They measured the stuff in the sewage that's going into the ocean. They went to the pump station and they measured the following compounds. And let me read you some of the ones that they've got there. Trimethylbenzene, BTEX, phenol, cresol, trichloromethane, which is chloroform, biphenol, and then other compounds, TPH, C20 to C30. That's just a, a grouping of chemicals. The pharmaceuticals that they measured there was paracetamol, tritocarban, naproxen, diclofenac, and we can carry on and on. They tested for about 55 different compounds. And some of these compounds like paracetamol in the sewage was about 500 milligrams per litre, which is very high. Looking at the robust plans to bolster the city's water supply through desalination, how effective and successful will desalinization be in the city's already troubled waters? Leslie explains. If a desalination plant only has to deal with salt water, which is what it's designed to do, it does a relatively good job. And if it was just salty water out there in the ocean, that would be fine. But the ocean is a huge mix of many different components. It's not just a sodium chloride. Reverse osmosis plants are designed to take out salts, and they do the job well. At any rate, wastewater should not be flushed out into the ocean as a means of waste removal. But unfortunately for the citizens and the city, sewage is not the only challenge and concern for successful desalinization to take place. But they're very expensive to run. They use a lot of electricity and the membranes are very expensive. To put a reverse osmosis plant in, you really need to think about pre-treatment. How are you pre-treating the water before it gets to the reverse osmosis plant? so that you don't bring anything to the reverse osmosis plant except the salt. Leslie went ahead and tested organisms in the water, and she found out that they were most affected by this contamination, and these were the most common dangers that the animals faced. A lot of these compounds cause things like feminization. In other words, the males of the species get wiped out, and that basically means the end of the line for that species. So that will mean that our stocks will crash. We won't have any fish in the ocean. The second thing is that it often has effects like causing cancer or causing behavioral anomalies. Humans may not live in the ocean, but a huge part of this study shows that humans form as much a part of the oceanic bio-network than they realize. Leslie elaborates. To tell you now, we also did a fish in Cork Bay and we found quite a lot of compounds in the fish that we're eating. You know the stuff that you'd go and buy of Cork Bay Harbour? The fish that we found there was Snook Bonita, Panga and Hottentots. And we were finding amounts in excess of 123 micrograms per gram dry weight or 82 micrograms per dry weight. So the fish had very high concentration of these compounds in them. The type of compounds we looked at was simazine, atrazine, alachlor, metallochlor and butachlor. Those are all herbicides and pesticides. We found levels of these pesticides in all the fish in their fillets as well as in their livers and gills and things like that. So in other words, the fillets are the things that you're eating and the fillets are full of pesticides. As much as 920 milligrams per grams dry weight, which is equivalent to just under one milligram of diclofenac drugs used for inflammation and pain from osteoarthritis, were also found in the fish. The daily recommended dose for adults is around 75 milligrams a day. For instance, with limpets, 
there was a study that came out recently that showed that if the limpet is exposed to, I think it was acetaminophen or one of those, it stops holding onto the rock. So if it can't grip onto the rock, it floats off into the sea and then it's dead. So it might have an effect on the way that they behave and the way that they can survive. So we're busy killing our ocean. And these marine outfalls are right next to what is supposed to be a marine reserve. And you can't tell those chemicals to stay outside the marine reserve. Many beaches, including Greenpoint, are contaminated with dangerously high levels of microbes such as E. coli and Staphylococcus, which are indicative organisms of the presence of feces and many pathogens, which the city of Cape Town exclusively measures for in their water monitoring and evaluations. Those organisms just tell you that there's fecal contamination there because the only origin of those microbes is feces. And if those microbes are there, any other microbe might very well be there as well, and that could be all the pathogens. So the city is not measuring for pathogens, and they're saying that the dilution is sufficient to take care of that. But, you know, if you had to smoke a cigarette and you watch your plume going into the air, you can see that plume for a considerable while before it disperses in the air. And then if you sit in a room where everybody's smoking, eventually the room will be full of smoke. And this is basically what's happening in the sea. The plume is going out and it takes its time to actually dissipate. And while it's busy dissipating, there are areas where it's highly concentrated. And if you just so happen to be unlucky enough to be swimming on the day where that plume comes max landfall, you're swimming in sewage. I tried to get a response from the city of Cape Town, but their spokesperson was unavailable at the time of broadcasting the story. But these statistics are just an indication as to what extent human pollution is affecting the environment and we should all consider how we deal with our waste and give a thought or two before flushing our toilets. That was a story by our producer Bridget Lepere about the health effects of desalination. Not something that I had ever thought about, Lebel, before this particular story or this particular show because we always think to the point of, oh, desalination, that's great. We can get more water. That's true. Like, you never think desalinated water could affect you other than just quench your thirst. Mm. And the other thing about this is just one of those things where scientists have found a solution such as how to deal with waste but then it can actually cause problems for another thing that's true it's like, like a domino effect. effect like you fix one thing then everything just falls yeah next thing falls and next thing falls and i am surprised that we haven't heard more of these health effects especially from the city of cape town and the people implementing these things but i do know that we did reach out to them it's obviously always a very tricky thing balancing balancing the needs and then the the challenges or the threats around this and it's also acknowledging it's like acknowledging the fact that desalination does the desalination of water does affect the drinker somehow Hmm. so it was a thing where they had to acknowledge it first then be like oh these are the effects let's explore these things right so uh we will be talking more about desalination in a very different way in fact inland desalination have you ever thought of that Uh, okay because we don't have oceans in land (gasps) we will get to that (laughs) just a little bit later but first and science is after the break the science inside. And everybody says, don't use plastic, don't use plastic. But give us some practical solutions here. One solution is zero waste stores. They're also called naked stores, but nobody takes their clothes off. And there are none of these in Joburg. And it's basically a shop where you get everything you want to buy without packaging. And this brings up all kinds of questions, like how does it work? And what about health and safety concerns? Every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Only on Volfam. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. We do bring you science around major news events, but in the middle of the show, we take a few minutes to get a little bit silly with things. It's called Unscience, and we look at the weird and wonderful science of research with Bridget uh, 
Oh, now I'm getting my names confused. <laughs> so sorry. With Le of course. Um, today's Unsigned was produced by her and um, has music from uh, PubMed as well as Sound Dogs. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Okay, Alna, I don't know how familiar you are with the pill or its side effects, but these side effects include weight gain, nausea, and the list goes on. But there's one side effect in particular that many wouldn't expect to actually experience, and that's blinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't have a medical degree. But blinking isn't a side effect. Everybody does it. It's a side effect of life. But yes. Of <laughs> <laughs> being a human. <laughs> but it turns out women who take the pill blink faster than women who aren't on the pill. Strange, right? But that has nothing to do with contraception. How, why would those two things be linked? <laughs> wow, I really don't think about it like that. It literally has nothing to do with contraception. Yeah. yeah, it's not saving you from anything. Right. I mean, if you blink fast, maybe maybe you appear more attractive to partners, but if even that doesn't make sense. You'd have to pay that with the really long eyelashes, yeah. you know, to create the charm effect. But if you don't have long eyelashes, this is not going to work for you. <laughs> <laughs> but researchers from the Pacific University College of Optometry found that women on the pill blink 32% more than women who aren't on the pill. That's In other a lot. Words. <laughs> yeah, that is a lot. 32%. Yeah, that is a lot. It's a third. That's <laughs> a lot more blinking you do. Exactly. So if you watch a woman for a minute, just a minute of your life, just watch a woman blink. And if they blink 20 times in that one minute, they're probably on the pill. Okay, that's just creepy. <laughs> Please don't go out like counting women's blinking rates. That I'm going to do that one day. I'm just going <laughs> to sit, watch people like, just come here, come here real quick. Just for a minute, I need to look at you. And then if they blink 20 times, I'm like, okay, cool. Bye. I know you're on the pill now. Um, <laughs> oh, that's terrible advice. Please don't go and do that. Yeah, because the difference is, it turns out that a woman who aren't on the pill actually blink 15 times compared to 20 that's a big difference actually okay yeah four more blinks yeah so it's not like the like the women who are on the pill will appear as if they frantically flick uh, flickering their eyes but they will blink a little bit more okay so the big question here is why does this happen since i really see no link yeah that's that's a big question and it's still a bit of a question in the medical field itself. So researchers did mention, even though this is still a bit of a philosophy, this answering this question, why exactly does the pill affect your blink rate as a woman? They did mention that there was no direct link between spontaneous blink rates and the history of contact lens use, tear break time, temperature and humidity in the examination room, subject age or menstrual cycle phase. So by process of elimination, they were like, well, they can conclude that the pill must be affecting some other mechanism that controls spontaneous blinking. But the exact detail of how that may happen is still very unclear. Okay, this makes sense because I was going to ask you why on earth would they be looking at this link in particular? But but you're saying they were just looking at blinking and then realized, oh, it's not this, it's not this, oh, it must be that. Exactly. Okay, so is this something to worry about? Okay, according to Alexandra Pope and Jane Bennett's 2008 book, The Pill, Are You Sure It's For You?, It's not because, and I quote, although this appears to be a strange side effect, it's not worth, it's worth nothing, sorry. So birth control doesn't affect, it's not a a serious effect when it comes to blinking, but it does affect more than 150 of your body's biological functions. Panic about that if you want to panic about something. (laughs) (laughs) That is a lot, actually. 150 is a lot. So I'm not really trying to scare you into not using birth control out here. But anyway, back to blinking. The pill isn't the only thing 
that's causing women to blink more often actually there's more to this so if you're saying women do you mean just women on on that particular kind of contraception or all women okay this time we're all in this together okay yes all women in general blink faster than men Okay, is this, is this not because we're like wearing mascara or fake eyelashes? No, it's not that. Okay. But with that being said, with women blinking more than men being said, um, a, publi- a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science stated that uh, briefly closing your eyes might actually help you gather your thoughts and focus your attention on the world around you. So this says a little something about men. I am not throwing shade. Um, (laughs) So blinking isn't as random as we think, guys. It does make sense. It affects how we are as people. And yeah, women just blink more and think through things a little bit more. That's a little bit of a jump. (laughs) A little bit of a jump there, I have to. From the pearl to men blinking less to men actually not thinking yeah just i i think let's leave the the unsigned signs to the scientists on that one just felt like throwing shade today guys okay. Okay. <laughs> that was unscience after the break more desalination unusual unlikely unscience This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show with myself, Elna Schutz and Lebo Madisha. Hello, hello. So today we are talking about desalination. And normally when we think of this process, it's in terms of taking ocean water and turning it into drinking water. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about earlier on the show. And we didn't go too much into the details of the actual process we are going to do that now but the ocean isn't actually the only place that desalination takes place did you know that nope (laughs) (laughs) far away from the ocean reverse osmosis desalination which is the most common form of desalination gets used inland to clean waste from water from industries like mining, power generation, fracking, even the textile industry, they all use desalination. And this field obviously has ongoing innovations to make the process better. Oh, but wow. this story starts in a cupboard level at the University of Cape Town in its crystallization and precipitation research unit at the Department of Chemical Engineering. There, Demetrius Shivavava handed me some goggles and a lab coat, just in case. You can grab the pot from there. I look for a pair of glasses for you. Thank you. And I don't know if they gave you a quick induction. Uh, I would suggest you that if something goes off like an alarm, just follow me. I will run after wherever you are running. Exactly. <laughs> So I thought that was pretty funny that he was like warning me in case something explodes, I must run. But thankfully, thankfully, nothing exploded there, but it's okay. (laughs) So we went into their labs. That's why we had the goggles to look at their innovation. But first, we have to understand how normal desalination works before we get to this innovation. Because normal desalination is the first step in their process. Have a listen. Okay, so this is a reverse osmosis unit, and this is more like the workhorse in industry when it comes to desalination. So we have our salt water, and we have a high-pressure pump, which is sitting inside there. And that high-pressure pump is the one that creates pressure, which forces pure water through the membrane. So essentially what we do is that we fill up this with a brine solution. We pump it from here. We filter it through these three cartridges. These are just normal water filtration? Yeah, it's normal water filtration, but we also have activated carbon for capturing uh, organics and whatnot stuff. But then after that filtration, the pressurized water is fed into the membrane. And because of the pressure, water is forced against osmotic push. So that osmotic pressure, once it's exceeded, then the water permeates and we collect that water. So this is the treated water. 
and because we are removing water we concentrate the pollutants and those pollutants make up what we called the waste stream Alna, we've heard that salt water or like or like goes in and cleaner water and a waste stream came out so what's the second step Right. So that is how normal desalination works. Salt water or a waste stream goes in, clean water and um and this and uh another waste stream comes out. That's how it normally works, right? Mm. So for drinking water desalination, the brine, so that's a highly salty wastewater, goes back into the ocean. And we just say ciao to it and that's the end of it but in the case of industry desalination which is what we were talking about earlier this hypersaline brine usually gets spread out in evaporation pans so basically we've used this waste water we've made a little bit cleaner but there's still quite highly concentrated waste Mm. and now all they do is put it in evaporation pans and that stuff just sits there Here's Demetrius uh, again. But then the solution back then, I think probably 10 or 15 years ago, was to build evaporation ponds. And these evaporation ponds are unsustainable. So they are a future liability in terms of maintenance. They have a large, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, land footprint. And because of that, in short, they are very unsustainable. And sometimes there's a risk of degradation of the lining then you can have contamination, other sources. And because of that, the next step was to look at technologies that can potentially recover some of the water because these brines still contain a little bit of water. They contain dissolved salts. It doesn't mean that some of these salts are useless. Some of them are actually very useful. You can recover gypsum that can be used in cement manufacturing, I think. You also have magnesium sulfate, you have sodium sulfate. So some of the salts which are still locked up in the brines can actually be recovered and used for other purposes, like in agriculture or in soap manufacturing, I think, for sodium sulfate. This is where dual desalination comes in to treat that waste brine. So the conventional method to deal with this is called evaporative crystallization. But this process is using lots of energy and has durability issues. So instead of heating the water, like in that process, there's a method called eutetic freeze crystallization or EFC. So that's the process that the team at UCT is working on, right? Yes. And if we now go back into their lab with them to their EFC model, which is obviously quite small. It's like as big as maybe an oven. Um, And this is a small scale. Obviously, this thing would be huge in industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's go back into their lab, have a listen to that. And as the name implies, freezing is involved. So this is a refrigeration space. So that room can go down to about negative 20 degrees C. This can only go down to about 2 degrees C. So when we do most of the experiments, we conduct them in the ice lab. But coming to the actual freezing process, so you have your briny or salt solution being cooled down here. And when you cool it down further, you get to a temperature where your ice starts forming and your salts starts forming as well. So you have simultaneous formation of ice and salt. And because these two products have different densities, ice will float to the top and come out through the overflow port. And your salt will sink to the bottom and is harvested through this underflow port. So essentially that's what we do. Okay, so water and salt is separated through freezing because they have different densities when they freeze, right? Yes. Exactly. So here's Benita Aspeling, also from the team, just explaining the science a little bit more. Okay, so I think one thing that everyone understands is how water turns into ice when you reach zero degrees. And as one increases the amount of impurities in the water, 
the temperature of freezing gets lower and lower. So if you think of if you're at the North Pole, even though it's zero degrees, the sea is not frozen. So what we do is we bring the water, the temperature down to below zero, and eventually we reach a temperature at which ice starts to crystallize. And in the same way as ice crystallizes out, salts also have their temperature solubility dependence. So for most substances, the higher the temperature, the more soluble it becomes. The lower the temperature, the more likely it starts to crystallize out. So this, for example, this can be seen if you have, if you put sugar in a cold glass of water, and then if you heat it up, then it dissolves. So it's the same thing, it's just now the opposite. Yeah, as we bring the temperature down, crystals start forming, salt crystals, and as we remove both ice and crystals, obviously the composition is changing. So you're making it more concentrated by removing the ice, and we are changing what salts are in there by removing one salt until eventually you're removing more than one salt, and as, as the temperature keeps on going down, you're basically removing different products with with time or with temperature, however you see it. So as Jamitas mentioned earlier, with this process, you can use not just the water, but also the salts get used in agriculture and other ways, so we're not losing them. All right, that's great. So while Oceanside desalination focuses on just getting drinkable water out, the dual desalination actually makes usable products out of the waste stream as well. Right? That's yes. really cool. Hmm. So if this tech actually works, why isn't it everywhere? Because we need this. Yeah, that's always a good question. And as I've mentioned, there are processes in place already that have been around for a long time and this is just a better process but even though it works scientifically there are still some issues including um, just making this work on large scales and making it cheaper so there are some companies already doing this in South Africa but not many and that means that there isn't mass industry confidence in the process yet. And it actually makes sense to use this for industrial waste streams, really, because getting back to the idea of water, can the EFC dual desalination be used for industry? You mean you mean for um, for industry and for the ocean? Yes. Well, this is one of the things that came up for me in this interview because it clearly can be used in industry. But what about the ocean? Because places like Cape Town are creating these waste streams um, in the desalination plants. Why not just apply it there? True. So, um, so uh, the answer is yes, hopefully. But uh, <laughs> here's Benita again talking about the future. Obviously, we'd also like to go into the seawater part. But at the moment, um, the... The requirements for discharge into the sea are much less stringent than requirements for going into um, rivers or other like inland options. And because the stuff that's come from the sea, all that happens is, is concentrated up. You're not adding any new elements into the sea. So it's just basically what was in the sea that gets dispersed back out. And obviously at the point of discharge, it's a problem because it's concentrated. Um, but except for that, it gets dispersed and it basically becomes part of the sea again. And also with seawater desalination, if we were to use EFC, you'd re require very low temperatures because of all the chlorides in the sea. Whereas inland, the brine mostly contains sulfates, so we can use much higher temperatures, just below zero, to actually separate out the salt. So it's much less energy intensive in terms of EFC. And this energy difference she's speaking about is quite big. And you'd need, of course, much larger scale refrigeration, right? So for seawater, we're talking about minus 22 or minus 25 degrees Celsius instead of one or minus one, like minus one, minus five. So it's a big difference that you're going to have to make up for. And as I was saying, this is just one part of a long process, but it could change the way we treat not only and the industry waste, but possibly ocean desalination in the future. This is great, though. I just had a really derailed thought when you tried to explain the compensation of temperature that would have to be accounted for in the larger scale. And I just thought of a giant fridge. 
Well, actually, that's exactly what they showed me. So they oh. do have they do have some pretty big um, freezing rooms there. Okay. They have two. And one of them is uh, at, I think, minus two degrees. And the other one is at, like, minus 20. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, they do have some pretty big freezing rooms there that they use. Obviously, they're still working at a small scale. Yeah. But... Um, as I said earlier, freezing is still more efficient and energy and cost efficient than heating, which is, is the current process. So I thought this was just a very interesting story to do. I know, I know it was very technical, but very interesting one because something like desalination, if nobody, if everybody always said, oh, it has to do with ocean water and drinking water, then then that would be where the technology stayed. But it just shows you how one technology can be used for two very different problems. Mm. And the pileup of waste would actually... Is the, re- is the reason why this study had to evolve, exactly. I can imagine. Because when you have this waste just there, you have to think, well, how am I going to get rid of this? What is it good for? And then you just integrate it into different parts. Mm. And I love it when things... Uh, when when there are usable products being mm. used or being found from, from waste streams. You're still on the Science Inside. We end the show after this. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Today, it's been all about desalination, a very practical approach to having more water in places like Cape Town and just lots of places in the world do use desalination. Mm. But And the moving forward of the technology into taking the waste product and using it elsewhere. Exactly. I've got to say I love shows like these because it shows you that even great solutions aren't flawless. Mm. There's still problems like the health effects that they didn't um, that they didn't expect oh, yes. that sewage wastewater would be taken in by the desalination plant. They didn't expect that, mm. um, and the kind of effects it's having on marine life and also humans. Um, but then also uh, seeing on the other side that desalination can actually be used as a solution elsewhere. Yeah, it's it's a v- if it were a character in a book, it would be a very rounded character. <laughs> Desalination has lots of different sides to mm. it. That was the show today. A big thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show, including Leslie Petrick, Demetrius uh, Shivavava, and Benita Aspling. For these stories, we also spoke to Lata Motsepe, Kledwen Mangunda, and King Ali. And today our team behind the scenes is production by, by Bridget Leperi, tech by Kutlano Sarame. And our podcast is on vids.journalism.co.za forward slash science and on iTunes as well. Our social media is on Facebook and Twitter at VowFM. My name is Alna Schutz. And I'm Lebohang Madisha. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. As every single week, we will be back with you next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.